Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore Latinx stories around spirituality, identity, and culture. This podcast is brought to you by Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ Latinx ministry within the United Church of Christ. My name is Taylor Ramaj. I'm an author, editor, and host of this podcast. I come from a Puerto Rican mother and a father of various Western European ancestries. Before we start, I want to extend the peace of Christ in particular to my Afro-Latinx listeners in light of the rearing head of injustice we are seeing right now. I also want to make it abundantly clear that this podcast is meant to uplift the voices of all LGBTQ Latinx. So if you are Afro-Latinx and LGBTQ, and you're a doctor, lawyer, minister, teacher, author, musician, artist, whatever, please email EncuentrosLatinx at gmail.com. Tell me a bit about yourself and your work, and I can add you to the guest list for the show. That's EncuentrosLatinx with an S after the X. I have some other announcements to share. You can now rate and subscribe to the show on Apple and Google Podcasts, so please consider supporting us there. New episodes come out on the first Saturday of each month. The audio quality will hopefully improve some by our third episode because I'll be using my new mic and trying out an alternative to Skype. So thanks for sticking with us as we get used to this whole podcasting thing. The show has gotten some press since our first episode. I want to thank Hans Holznagel, sorry if I butchered that, for the nice write-up on the UCC National website. I am super stoked that the wider church is excited about this podcast, and I hope that you all find it edifying, educational, maybe even entertaining. We also received a lovely note from a listener named Christina Lizardi Hajbi, who writes, Thank you for starting this wonderful podcast for your witness to those of us who are Latinx, queer, and UCC. I also really resonate with your experience of not being a Spanish speaker. I am a biracial Puerto Rican Italian and was not raised in a home where I learned Spanish. In the past, in the UCC, I was made to feel a great deal of shame about that and was not always welcome in Latinx spaces. I'm relieved to say that this has changed completely, and now the community of UCC Latinx is welcoming, diverse, fully bilingual, and open in so many ways. Thank you for sharing your experience, which has, in turn, helped me to feel less alone, knowing there is someone else out there who does not, quote, check this box. Christina, all of us in Encuentros hope that this podcast and all of our other projects will continue to help people feel more complete and welcome in their identities. And if you, dear listener, want to send a lovely message of your own, I just may give you a shout-out and read it on the show just like this. All right, my guest today is our podcast logo designer, Yadi Martinez-Reyna, and we chat about everything from growing up in the borderlands between the United States and Mexico to authenticity and telling stories to the cool work they're doing at First UCC Second Life. Let's get right into this encuentro. Yadi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am super excited to be able to talk to you 
and to hear more about your story. Could you just introduce us, uh, introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Yes, my name is Yari Martinez Reina. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Personally, I really have no problem being they, them, theirs, or she, hers, him. I, I really don't have uh, any problem with that. However, the younger generation, the younger crowds, some of them really do take their gender-neutral pronouns seriously. They, like, they really need that as part of their identity. And we need to model that in order to help them. And so that's why I started to be more, you know, more determined to use them and, and trying to educate people a little more about them. Because, uh, for example, I have a young team that I work with that just came out as gender neutral. And, and that's her, you know, that's their thing. And so I want to be able to respect that and, and being able to model that is important for the yeah, younger generation. Yeah, definitely. Certainly when I was a teenager, we didn't really have a concept of that. I mean, I, I definitely had friends who were androgynous and their presentation or their understanding of themselves, but I didn't start hearing this wider use of gender neutral pronouns until a few years ago. So I definitely agree that it's important and, and it was definitely an intentional part in naming this podcast that we use the, the X there. So And now what uh, country or countries do you and your family come from? This is the podcast is Encuentros Latinx and we want to get to know everybody from all the countries and all, and all the cultures. So, so share with us your heritage. So my mother was born in Matamoros and my father was born in Cárdenas, San Luis Potosí from Mexico. So my family is from Mexico. Great, great. And what's a good memory that you have about Mexico? Um, you got to visit there or live there for a little bit. And, you know, if not, then what is a great memory that you have just around the family and cultural practices? First, I am a borderlander, meaning that I was born and raised in the border of two countries, Brownsville and Matamoros. And so one of my fondest memories is the fact that I coexisted between these two countries, back and forward, crossing the bridge and going to Matamoros to, to get mandado, to get groceries and spending the afternoon in the plaza, drinking cafe, drinking coffee with my family or going over to eat tacos. Those are very fond memories of, of being in, you know, being raised by the water. Like everything was just so fluid when I was growing up. And then I have a fond memory about Cardenas because every summer my family would go to Cardenas uh, with our cousins and with our greater family. And we would go swimming. We would go uh, to the cerros, the hills, and we would just spend our summers there. And it was like the best vacations ever. So the daily life, the daily culture, but also like our, our intentional summer trips that we took as a family. That sounds beautiful. And this is maybe speaking a little bit into into my own my own ignorance. So it sounds like you cross the, the border, I mean, a lot of times going between the, the two different places with our political situation today and all the difficulties of people crossing the border. Like, what did you, did you see any of that there? Yeah, so when I visited the valley this past year, I noticed things were so different. Like, for the first time ever, there was a gate in between the bridge that was now being able to be shut down by the United States. And, you know, hopefully you were not stuck on the other side or either side if you were crossing over. That was the first thing that I noticed. To be able to coexist between the borders and to be able to go and get groceries, go to the doctor, because... You know, I, my doctor is in Mexico, even now. 
my doctor is in Mexico. I traveled to see her. And so that was just life. And so now it's like you have to check and make sure that the U.S. is not closing the bridge, that you are going to be allowed to come back. And part of that also is that when you're coming back, the checkpoints, they've reduced them to instead of having five or six of them open, they have like two open. And then that makes the bridge waiting in the bridge. Like you could be you could be waiting to come back to the U.S. for two to three hours just waiting to cross over. So it's crazy. The, the new changes that have taken effect. Wow. So, yeah, so when you were younger and when you were growing up, do you, you remember that being a fairly easy process to, to cross over? And then as you got older, you noticed that becoming more and more difficult. Is that is that a correct rehashing of your experience? That is. Within the last, I would say, three or four years, really, that it just started getting intense. This past year definitely was, was something I've never seen. I have never seen, as you cross the border, U.S. agents like greeting you as you're crossing over, kind of like just sitting there, you know, as you're crossing. You always saw U.S. agents, ICE agents as you were coming back, not when you were going in. So I found it a bit of intimidating, sort of like intimidating tactic that you were you were like crossing over and it's like, why are you going over there? What's the point? What, what are you? And it's like that wasn't the case years ago. That wasn't the case. That was definitely not the case growing up. So wow. that's been different. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, I I've never been down there. I've never I've never even been close to the border. I don't, so I only know what I hear others uh, others say, and you know whatever becomes viral on on social media. And, and I I feel like I have this impression in my mind that it's this really like scary, intimidating, just military setup, and you see like just all of the the tents or wh- wherever it is that, that they're keeping people like it like it's I have this really horrible and extreme image in my mind of like when I imagine oh I'm near the border about to cross the border I just I just see this like this desolation or, or this just really bleak bleak setup so how much how much of that <laughs> how much of that I guess is, is true in, in your opinion or, or in your opinion and also just in your experience of where specifically you crossed over versus maybe other places that maybe the border control is even more extreme in some areas than others yeah so I cross uh, Brownsville and Matamoros so there is different bridges to cross there's a Puente de los Tomates which is a more desolated place. It's it's longer roads. It's it's it stretches out. There is the Puente, Puente Viejo, the old bridge. That what they called it. That was the kind of the original bridge that was built. It's also more desolated, longer to cross. And then there's the Puente Nuevo, the new the new international bridge. Now, when you cross over, you don't see as much of the disparities and the anxiety of seeing people in need as when you're coming back. In the past year, at least, it's when you had all these tents build up of all these refugees that were coming to try to seek asylum. And it didn't matter where they were from. They had to stay in, in, in Matamoros. They had to stay there and wait for for an appointment or something. And so what you had, at least around the New Year's and the Christmas time, you had all these tents popped up. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And through growing up and, and visiting down there where you had tents that would go miles out into, you know, just people living in tents, children, elderly, you know, just people living in tents, really waiting to to get asylum, waiting to get a to get a notification. And so 
the sad thing about it was the the human rights like there's bathrooms but where did they wash their hands i mean did they would did they go all the way down to the rio to wash right. their hands i don't yeah. see that happening right. um how did they eat like you know what what things that they that they have and so some ch- churches around the area would go and, and try to help i have family members who are active in helping immigrants i have a, an elderly aunt who is very committed to that and she you know waking up at 5 a.m and going over to where the immigrants were so they would come over and be fed and they would you know they would let them go to a certain areas and and be fed or 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 you know waiting to see what was happening mm-hmm. so you had these these churches going and, and trying to help out but now they've moved them to a different area i think that they did that so matamoros wouldn't look so bleak because it definitely affected the tourism and definitely affected Americans crossing over to just go have tacos or just go for a drink at Garcia's or whatever. Like mm-hmm. it was harder because then it was like, you couldn't just cross over because you had all these tents, all these people all over the place. So I think what they've done is they moved them into some other areas where uh, it might be easier to, I guess, to help them. Mm. It was definitely a sad situation around the Christmas time to yeah. see all these children and all these people there. Yeah. I find that this contrast that you're describing so interesting because at least in in the impression that I've gotten for most of my life of of the border, it was never I, I never had the impression that at any time in history it was ever easy or or fluid for people to cross over. Like you just described a time when people could just go jump on the other side to go get tacos or go get a drink or, or whatever. This, this very like nice sense of a, of a less restricted border is just not something that was ever in my consciousness of, of the situation down there. And at least in, in, my, in my experience of being a person that is aware of the wider world. So I'm really glad that you provided that that image because I th- I think that's really that's really interesting and, and and I know that there's there's some discourse about the idea of open borders and and what you des- what you described it's like oh man if only if only that could be a part of the past to bring back this th- that there once was an open border because there once was a more open border then maybe we can go back to it at some point in the future who knows. So there's a book that came out recently. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's called American Dirt. And it is a very controversial book because it's a kind of a thriller story about a woman and her son who are fleeing gang violence and they're having to cross the border to seek refuge in the United States. And there's it has caught a lot of flack because the author is a she's mostly a white woman who has some ancestry from Puerto Rico I think she says that her her grandmother is Puerto Rican so she's like one quarter Puerto Rican and this book had a publicity campaign that you know like the the launch party had this cake and the cake was decorated with barbed wire. So I, I'm curious, like, has this been on your radar? Because if, if not, like, I can keep describing it, but if you were aware of this, I'm, I'm really curious as to, like, you know, you're, you, you come from Mexico, and, you know, I'm sure that 
your your family or friends of your family they may they might have actually like had a lot of experience a lot of real visceral experience with asylum seekers and all of that and i'm just i'm just curious to hear like your perspective on that if you've heard of this book and the controversy around it or um and just what you think about that yeah, I think this is the book, if I'm not mistaken, that many people were asking Oprah Winfrey to reconsider her pick for, for I guess it was like part of the book club, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And they I were like, so, you, need yeah. to re- you need to reconsider, you, mm-hmm. re- you, know, you need to reconsider your pick because it's very controversial and, and things like that. But I never understood, like, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. And, and anything to do with with open borders or, or anything like that is going to create controversy just in nature because it is very difficult to 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 make sense like how we could be in a country that all these people are going to come over and are going to like take over and we're going to have no jobs we're going to have no you know medicare and they're going to take over the health stuff and, and all these things there's and there's of course the great fear of violence the fears of you know all these all these Mexicans crossing over could be violent people could be gang rapers whatever and and I say that because when I went to El Paso on a borderland tour with with my seminary Bright Divinity we actually went on a tour with with the border patrol with the ICE agents and one of them actually said that she said that she doesn't feel bad for these people when they get caught because like one of them was a murderer like he had things on his record and she didn't feel bad that they caught him and that, that he was dehydrated up in the mountains when they found him and they almost died because he was a murderer like he had he had a record and it's like not everyone is that way but everyone is treated everybody is treated that way and so any stories having to do with i think with someone coming over or a parent coming over with a child is is controversial in nature like for instance these children that are in cages you know, it, it's if you just say it that way, it sounds terrible. But if you ask an ICE agent or you ask someone who works with Border Patrol or with the U.S. government, they would say they're not in cages. They're children that have been, you know, placed in different areas and, you know, they're being fed and they're being cared for. And, you know, and we're going to try to, like, not make it seem so bad as the children are in cages, separated from their parents, and we just lost a bunch of children everywhere. Let's not focus on that. Let's just say, well, it was the parents' fault for bringing them in the first place. They, they broke the law, they brought the kids over, and now it's their fault that this kid's life is ruined. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's such a, such a sad thing to say, but, but there's a lot of people who really feel that way. And so to have compassion for someone who flees a country or for someone looking for, another, for a better life or for a better world is not an easy thing to do. Because a lot of people, when it comes to the border and when it comes to, to these topics, they say, why don't you do the right thing and get in line? Why don't you go get in line so you can come in the right way? So you can get a number, so you can come in and, and see a judge, and so you can be accepted. The thing is that there's no freaking line. There is no line. Where do you want me to get in line? There are so many cases that that literally takes years. There's people waiting decades before they're seen. The thing about like I said, the controversial, the controversy of surrounding the border is that there's so many opinions about how things should go. There is an understanding that if you open the border, all these people are going to come over and then there's not going to be enough. And I think that is the fear. There's not enough. But here's the thing. There are people coming to the U.S. and are trying to make a living 
and one of my one of the things that I that I can share is I lived and I existed in two worlds. I existed in Matamoros. I existed in Brownsville. I existed between two borders and in the, uh, you know, it's borderlander. And that is life down there in the valley. I mean, it, as I crossed over early in the morning, I see people, I see young people crossing over to go to school in Brownsville. These young people wake up at five in the morning. It's five in the morning when I'm crossing over to go get some blood work done for my doctor. And these kids are in line at five in the morning to go to school. That is commitment for young people to be crossing over to go to, uh, to, go to school. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, we can't say who they are or what's it about because they probably have an address down in Brownsville or somewhere that, that yeah. they live, or that they're saying that they live. But the truth is that they're, they're trying their best. They're trying to get their education. Yeah, and, and so I think I'm now jogging my memory of this this controversy around this American Dirt novel in particular. And it, it feels kind of weird because I haven't read it either, but I just became aware of the discourse around it because I'm on Twitter. One key point that seemed to just really infuriate people was this question around authenticity. We had this author who's pretty much a white lady, and even even her even her Latinidad, she's coming from Boricua people, and Puerto Ricans. We don't we don't really have the the immigration burden in terms of like the legality of it and the paperwork because, really, you know, people can go from from the island to the mainland, and you don't need a passport, you don't, you don't need additional papers, you don't need to like apply for citizenship. So you have this, this author who has a little bit more of a distant connection to any sort of, of uh, Latinx identity, who is writing this story about a Mexican experience of fleeing gang violence and crossing the U.S. border. And that that gets published. That gets like a six-figure advance, some some ridiculously you know high advance, compared to stories that are written by Mexican people, you know, that don't nearly get as much the the same uh, the same attention. So, what are your thoughts around just the this? concept of authenticity and who gets to tell stories and what stories should we be telling and and who should we be making space for like if we're telling a story who is not telling their story you know what I mean like what are your thoughts around that yeah so one of the first things that that I would ask is is this story and like I said I haven't read it but is this story about this person or is this person telling someone else's story mm-hmm. and so that's you know, the first thing. The second thing that I personally witness, my friend from Puerto Rico, okay, she was with me in the vehicle and we're crossing mm-hmm. over and the Border Patrol agent asked for her documents. Oh, God. And she says, I was born in Puerto Rico. And the guy says, but when did you cross over? And this is, oh, I- this is ICE. This is ICE. Oh, my Why? God. Why? Because she is brown. And yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to bring that up, though. Like, yeah. brown people get like, yeah, you get you get interviewed and you get pulled aside, just like less than whiter, you know. Yeah. Skip boys. My partner didn't have a passport. She's white. Just mm-hmm. went over and says, I don't have a passport, but I'm U.S. citizen, and she went right through. <laughs> well, my friend who was born in Puerto Rico had to be pulled oh aside. God. 
and so that's why I asked, like, does this person have a story to tell that is an experience that actually happened? Or is she telling the story of someone else? You know, because I, I have many stories of people that I've come in contact with. I, I personally have never struggled with having to cross or, you know, having to come with a coyote or, but I know family who has. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, how can we tell these stories and how can we make space for these stories that are important and they need to be told? Like, is it possible for us to then shed a light on these stories by creating spaces for them? Mm-hmm. Is this book, is this controversy creating spaces for this and, and mm-hmm. creating a way for this conversation to have? Mm-hmm. Now, you're a writer mm-hmm. and it's not an easy thing to get published and to get out there and to get your work read and things like that. Right. You know, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a, I mean, I'm an academic scholarly writing writer, but not, I haven't published books or anything. Yeah. But my point is, I, I don't know what that, what that entails. Like it took a friend of mine opening the space for me to write in a chapter on their book, you know? Mm-hmm. So is that possible for us to do for other people? Because my people down in, in Matamoros are in the border. They probably have some really great stories, but who's going to tell them? Who has the clout to tell them? Who has mm-hmm. the ability to tell them? And, you know, that that's certainly something that, that I would love to do in the future, you know, to be able to go down there and, and interview folks and, and to be able to vote and not to exploit them, mm-hmm. but to give them the space. Now, mm-hmm. some might be anonymous because they don't want to be, of course, recognized, while mm-hmm. others, they just don't know what those platforms are. Yeah, the whole writing thing. You're right. It's it's not easy at all. There's a lot that goes into, especially on the traditional publishing side, who gets published and what gets pushed the most in the marketplace and all of that kind of stuff. So there doesn't seem to be a super clean or easy answer. There, there's certainly good paths to follow and good ideals to, to follow. And there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot of push in publishing to make space for people to tell their own stories. There's a whole hashtag called Own Voices where authors who are writing from marginalized experiences, if their their fictional stories and their characters also reflect those experiences, then they can tag that as own voices. And, and that is becoming a, a space for marginalized folks to say like, hey, I'm writing this fictional story, but it's also from my experience living these realities. So, so some of that is definitely happening, but like you said, there's always going to be those anonymous kids in the border towns who don't have the connections or the opportunities to to have their stories told. So it's it's always like a two sides of a coin or whatever the figurative language is. But this question around identity, this this whole conversation around identity, I feel like especially with the Latinx identity, I mean it the way that the term is used here in the United States, it encompasses really so many so many countries and, and cultures and just mixtures of all kinds of different things. So what is your sense of your Latinx identity and what helps you to connect to that or express it? Well, uh, my parents are Mexican, so I consider myself a Mexican. I've always said that I, I'm a Mexican. I come from Mexican parents. My my entire identity was formed by my culture of being of being raised and 
in that area of you know the border of being raised in both countries. Spanish was my first language. Even in school, my teacher spoke to us in Spanish, you know. So my identity has always been that. Although there is a dualism with being born in the United States, because then that comes in the Chicano part. You're, you're Chicano, you're Chicana, or you're born in the U.S. So you have people who might discredit that. You know, I've heard someone, someone actually told me, you're not a real Mexican. Like, you were born in the U.S. You're not a real Mexican. When I would go to Cardenas, sometimes the kids around would call me gringa. You know, I like gringa, gringa, gringa. Why? Because I come from the U.S. I was born in the U.S. So that's kind of a sad, that that used to be something that was sad for me to consider because, you know, there's a, there's a Mexican icon, La India Maria, and she says, ni de aquí, ni de allá. I'm not from here, I'm not from there. Because she was like stuck in between two worlds. And I feel like my identity has been split between those two worlds. Mm. And as I grow older, though, I hold on to, to the identity that my, my parents are from Mexico. And I hold on to that culture and that identity that I am also, I am from Mexico. Even though I was lucky enough to have been born on the other side of that line. Yeah, yeah. I wonder just, I'm sure that whole sense of being in two worlds, existing in two worlds, is probably pretty common amongst a lot of Latinx people. But I feel like probably we, we all have our own nuanced versions of it. I certainly have my own version of that sense of being between two worlds. And it, it's not, for me, it's not just being in two worlds in terms of I have this Puerto Rican side of me and this, this American side of me, but there are other facets of my other identities and just other areas of my life where I feel like I'm between two things that seem to be presented as opposites or things that that cannot be blended together. So I I definitely relate to that in, in a different way too. So it sounds like though that you had, you always had a strong connection to your sense of identity as as you were growing up. Have you had any periods of your life where you felt like you really had to choose between them? Like you did say that now you're at a point of where you're kind of accepting it, but did you ever go through a period where you felt either because of society or because of something else that you were being asked to choose one or the other? Yeah, uh, I think in particular, the Spanish language, as you know, is either a O or an A. You're either a girl or a boy. You're either, you know, you either fit in this category or you fit in the other. The same thing goes with the dualism of you're an American or you're a Mexican. You're here, you're there. And so the hard thing is to realize that you're a gender nonconform individual and you don't fit in a box. You don't fit in this language that either called you senora, uh, a lady, a miss, you know, or senor, and you don't quite feel either or, so it's really difficult. So I felt as like, I think the American culture is more accepting, like it opens to more opportunities of being more fluid or being able to change. And so I love the fact that our culture and our language is expanding. Many people, as you know, have trouble with the X. And have trouble, and I've heard this by, you know, just seen it on social media. People go on a rampage about how they're trying to change our beautiful cultural language and they're trying to, like, shove an X down our throat. It's like, if it's not for you, you know, cheers, like, leave it alone. But to be able to make, to put an X 
And to be able to put an E instead of hermanas, hermanos, mm -hmm. you get mm -hmm. the hermanes, yeah. Latinx instead of Latinos, Latina. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is really expanding our culture and our language and saying that that just as our beautiful culture is so accepting and, and loving of all because we believe in familias, we believe in, in all this beautiful thing, we're, we're expanding it for everyone to feel accepted and to feel included and to feel like you don't have to choose something else. You could be you. You could be fluid between the countries. You could be fluid between your sexuality. You could be fluid between what you believe in or don't believe in. And it's okay. And so I love the fact that the UCC in this Encuentros has made these toolkits, has made this, has made these spaces to be able to share with our congregations, to be able to share with people and say, it is possible to exist in our culture as a fluid and as an open people of grace. Yeah, it's totally, totally beautiful thing. And I'm always learning more deeply about it every day. Sometimes I feel like I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I, I have a pretty good understanding, you know, about how this works. And I, I've wrapped my head around it pretty well. But then there's always a new perspective, a new story, a new way of looking at it and understanding it that just further expands my whole concept of it. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing because I think it really points to just how vast God is and how just God exists beyond our logic. But um, going into this discussion about identity and spirituality and religion, what are your experiences around spirituality and religion? Like what traditions did you grow up with and how do those traditions intersect with or, or challenge or reunite with your sexuality, your gender identity? So I was raised extremely conservative. I, I was raised in a Pentecostal congregation that now I can name the things that they that, that they do because you know because of seminary. I can tell you that this congregation believes and this group of people believe in following the Deuteronomy and the Leviticus code and the Jewish law as if it is the Bible, the inerrant word of God, no mistakes whatsoever to be taken literal. And so I was raised in a community that believed in not wearing pants, not cutting your hair, not mixing with people of the world, not listening to music that's from the world that is secular. The extreme of being raised in this environment that it was until I was like 18, 19 years of age or something like that where I, where I first wore my first pair of pants. And when I left Brownsville and moved to Dallas, I first was the first time I ever cut my hair. So there was this huge problem inside me in understanding that I could be spiritual, I could believe in God, and I could believe that God loves me when all my childhood in, into adulthood I was told that if I did not follow this rigid plan, this rigid way of life, I was not going to heaven and I was going to be left behind, which traumatic experience there. But the point is that if you don't follow this rigid world, this rigid life, there is just absolutely no guarantees that you'll even make it to heaven. So then I came to the point where I said, then what's the point? What's the point? If I'm already going to be a sinner and if I'm already going to hell and if I'm already going to be bad, then what is the point of doing this? Like, and so I left the church. I, I left the church of my childhood. I left Christianity. I, I didn't want nothing to do with it. 
And but yet I still believed in God. So it took years before I was able to to reconcile that I was gay, that I, I was different. I knew all along I was, but I worked so hard not to let that influence my life because I was running away from this sin. And so to have found the UCC at the time I did and to have found that God loves me unconditionally, regardless of who I am, was like such an eye opening because I, I was raised in this environment, but I was also raised in this environment because I wanted to be a street preacher. I felt that I was being called to to street ministry, to work with kids. And so when I left the church, I left my identity. I left who I was. I left I left my career, you know what I wanted to do. And so to have been able to find that later on was such a eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, and and I feel like that's such a common story that I hear just with anybody who finds their way to the UCC. I feel like almost everybody that I meet in the church has this story of like, yeah, I was raised in this one tradition and and then I, I left and, and some had a very, very wandering path among all kinds of different traditions and others, you know, maybe their journey away wasn't as long, but it does seem like that a lot of people that I meet within the church or within the United Church of Christ specifically has taken this deep journey of like really being separated from Christianity for a while and then coming back to it. And I just find that whole concept of the leaving and the coming back very just very beautiful. But you did find your way back to the church and you are doing a lot of really cool work now. So can you tell us about some of this work that you're doing? Yeah, so I feel that I've been called to work with young people. That's my passion, working with young people and creating events and networking and and opportunities for young people to experience or to find grace in whatever shape that is. So my work is around that. So I work with youth at New Church Quesanueva in UCC Dallas where I teach three different age groups of youth. And based on the work that I've done with young people for the over the last 10 years, I'll do speaking engagements, I'll do workshops. Sometimes I'm called in to do some workshops about speaking to youth about spirituality or speaking to youth about controversial subjects or difficult situations. I've worked at youth centers before, so I also do some, what do you call it, consulta, you know, you, you help others. So I do workshops, I do a lot of that. And recently, as, as you know, Encuentros came up, and so they've asked mm-hmm. me to to be part of the concilio and so i've done some work with them in terms of the toolkits as you and i work great in that that journey oh yeah that the- <laughs> seems to have taken forever but we, we got it done yep. and so yeah so that's kind of the work that i tend to do i haven't been as active as i have in the past because of seminary it takes so much mm-hmm. i'm about a year away to graduate from seminary so i'm hoping spring 2021 and so yeah, so my work revolves around how can I create spaces, safe and brave spaces for young people to interact. Back in the day, we, I was able to create some prom and some experiences, you know, activities for young people to, to like Team Pride, things like that. And so I am hoping that after I graduate from Bright Divinity, that I can go back to doing that part of my work. So for now, I'm a bit of behind the scenes we were talking about writing. I am not a writer. I am an artist. I create art. That's who I am. Yeah. And so you created the logo, the logo for the podcast. You are the podcast logo artist. Yes, I'm an artist. That's what I do. I draw. I create art. And so when somebody asks me to do some of these writings, I usually am taken back because I'm like, I'm not a writer. But I am grateful for people like you who edit and people who create spaces for our stories to be told, even though we might feel like 
oh, there is absolutely no way I'm going to venture into that, you know, because you get nervous. Because Spanish is my my first writing, which means English is going to be terrible. My grammar is horrible. But to be able to to have those spaces, though, it's been great. Like I have a, a chapter that recently was published on it's called Otherwise Christian. It's a book for for transgender and gender nonconform and stories of the oppressed. So it's Otherwise Christian and publishing. And my friend Chris was like, I, I need to include one of your stories in there. I'm like, I'm not a writer. But so I find that slowly God has been moving me slowly towards like, you need to tell your story. You need to tell stories. Hmm. Yeah. So one aspect of your work that that I find particularly interesting, especially in this time of COVID-19 and the separation that we're experiencing from physical spaces, you are super involved in UCC Second Life. So can you tell us about UCC Second Life? And just, I, I guess one thing that I really am interested in hearing your thoughts on specifically is just this whole this whole theology around being together without being physical. Because I feel like so many of our practices within Christianity are very physical, very tactile. There's there's the laying of hands on people. There's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There's the physical act of receiving communion and giving communion. I would love to hear just how UCC Second Life and your work with that reframes all of that. So First UCC Second Life was founded by Jerome Newstar, who created this space for people who are normally not going into physical churches, either because they were hurt, either because there's not a physical church around, they are trans, they are autistic, they are they have disabilities. I mean, you name it and it's there. And so he created this space where the actual realm of this digital world is a safe space with like a psalter area with with a cross and a, and a fireplace and, and avatars go and sit around and they listen to the psalms and they meditate. But he also created a a church area along with an altar with the candles, with the cross. And yes, we are very tactile. We're very hands on and we are very like physical and baptism is certainly very physical communion is certainly very physical but everything that we do in a real space is done in second life because second life is a real church with real life standing from the nevada conference of the ucc it is a real church with real pastors and so once a month like the last sunday of the month we actually have communion and so all of us are told, like, gather your bread, gather your juice, and we're going to have communion. And so the words of institution are said, the songs are read. You know, we eat, we share, drink, and we remember. And so the actual communion takes place. And so here you are in a space where you have all these avatars sitting around a church. And we are geographically apart, miles away, even countries away. And we are together we actually had washing of feet. So the avatars went, sat on the floor while the other avatars sat in front of it and placed the hands on their feet as washing their feet. We actually had our first baptism. A young man from Norway is autistic. It cannot be touched, cannot be, you know, so, but he wanted to be baptized. And Second Life is his home church. And so after after a while of talking about how we're going to do this while still being true to what baptism is. So baptism needs water, needs the laying of hands, needs the words of baptism, and needs a community presence. So 
in Norway where he was, he had his hands in a bowl of water while his brother witnessed this. And at the same time in Second Life, the community gathered around him and did the words of baptism and put water, you know, the avatar was on a white gown and was baptized. And so that would have never happened to him because he would have never gone into a church, number one. Number two, being autistic, he would have never allowed nobody to touch him. But he is a super smart young man. He just doesn't fit in these type of of environments. And so the UCC has this saying that no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. And to be able to be in Second Life as a pastor and you are sitting there while you have fairies and you have all these avatars all around. You have furries. You have, I mean, mm-hmm. there's yeah. all these people sitting around there listening to you preach. It's just like, you're like literally saying all are welcome. Like, I don't care how you look. I don't care what you look like. You are welcome here and we truly mean it. Uh, where would you go to church with a furry sitting next to you? Actually, my church. You know, that's awesome. Well, there's a teenager who... Sometimes they come to church with their parent and for a while they sometimes they would come to church and they they actually make fursuits and they're like totally involved in the furry community and they totally have they're like I think they're 17 now and they have this whole side hustle of making fursuits and like going to furry con and doing that whole thing. This teenager a couple of times has worn some of their first stuff to church. I think the first time they did it, it was for, we were doing a Halloween thing or, or something. And so everybody was dressed up or a lot of people were dressed up. And then there were a couple of, of times afterward because the congregation was just, instead of being like, oh, ew, you're a furry, which is like totally a thing that happens. I'm sure, you know, you're familiar with it. The congregation was just like, oh, wow, you made that? That's so cool. You've got feet and you've got hands and you've got a tail. That's really interesting. Wow, you really, you really make a lot of that. So then this teenager, they would come to church and they felt comfortable wearing some of their stuff. And it's like, where else is that going to happen? That barely happens in the secular online subcultures that supposedly take all the freaks and geeks, you know. Furries are the pariahs of a lot of online communities. But then here's this like, you know, random UCC church full of people that mostly don't know what a furry is. Like people were asking me like, oh, Taylor, like, what do you mean? Like, you understand this? I'm like, yes, I do understand. And I can explain it so that the kid doesn't have as much pressure. It isn't feeling as much stress. You know, I was kind of helping to educate the congregation of like, okay, yeah, I know, I know what this is. And I know kind of what this teen is doing. So, so yeah, only in the UCC, in my opinion. It's it's amazing. It's so great. It's so great to hear that a young person can be affirmed. And so yeah, it's but the first time I preached, I remember preaching in Second Life and looking at the at the congregation, the avatars around me, and seeing all these different individuals. And I was like, this is awesome. And here's the thing: I do pastoral care with young people and with people in Second Life. I don't necessarily know who they are because I don't, you know, I, I know who they are in Second Life, but that is who they are. And we say in Second Life, it feels good to be real in Second Life because they literally they exist in this environment and we are providing the space and a place for them to be brave and to be who they are. That's who they are. That's who we respect that they are. And so that that is super important, I think. And so I I have a lot of fun, you know, to be in a place like this. It's been amazing. It's been an amazing experience. Yeah, super, Mm -hmm. super cool. And. You know, especially with this pandemic, now so many churches, churches all should be 
going online if they have the capability or unfortunately suspending services churches should not be meeting in person right now that is not a good idea i'm just going to say that because i feel like i need to be responsible and say that let's keep each other safe let's do things that try to help the situation so there's that but i also have seen hints of discourse around people that you know christians and and you know especially those who have a very specific tradition that they practice and very specific ideas about how to do communion and and what makes communion valid and how Zoom church is challenging all of that. And, and there's some who are like, oh, well, now it's not a real valid thing. What is your response to that type of criticism from those people who are like, well, because X, Y, and Z are not in place because we're distance and there is not an actual like physical touching it's the or whatever it might be therefore this sacrament is not valid or not true like what is your response to that on the night that jesus was betrayed he shared the cup and the bread with his friends and followers the people we call family and if we start just with those words if we just start with that understanding of what communion is then we are already in a place even if it's like we're online, we're on Second Life, you might be on a, on a screen, on a Zoom call, but we are a community and we are remembering a sacrifice that was made by someone for us. And so this thing about whether it's valid or invalid, it's, it's just it makes no sense. Are we together? Yes. Are we remembering? Yes. Is there someone who is blessing the bread and the cup as we eat and drink? Yes. And so... All of those elements are there. Now, you get your cup and your bread ready in your space, in your side of the screen. But that doesn't make it less holy or less sacred. The sacrament is not less sacred because you're not in front of the person or the pastor literally seeing it being done. When you walk over to the pastor to receive communion, you did not stand up there with him and touch the bread and the cup. You sat in your seat and watched him do it, right? or watch her do it, or watch them do it. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is you're still seeing all those things. The only difference is you went and gathered your elements. Mm -hmm. But if you put those elements in front of that screen, and you hear the words of institution, and you see that pastor, and you hear that pastor blessing it, it is done. It is there. It is a sacred space, even if it's virtual. Amen to that. You know, any sort of reframing, recontextualizing of our wonderful and beautiful traditions into new formats, I mean... Jesus meets us where we are, God meets us where we are. If that wasn't true, then I don't think the faith would have lasted as long as it has. Of course, part of that is certainly due to Christendom and imperialism and all these very evil things that have been done in the name of God and in the name of Christianity. But but I also think an element of it is that if God couldn't adapt to new human situations, then we wouldn't be here doing anything. So Yadi, where can folks keep up with you and your work? I, I know you have Instagram and sometimes you post some screen caps of what's going on in Second Life. So drop us all of your handles, your, your websites, any place that we can go to keep up with you and what you're doing. I have a website, uh, creativepastor.org, except instead of the A, it's an eight. So C-R-E-8. I T-I-V-E, creativepastor.org, but with an eight. And in social media, I can be found under Creative Liberal. 
So that's my my hashtag, I guess. Second Life, we can be found at First UCC Second Life. And we actually have a website. It's called firstuccsecondlife.org. Great. And the last thing that I'd like to get into is your passage from the LGBTQ toolkit that we published. And I'll just give a brief summary of what these toolkits are. They are these workshops that we've developed, Proyecto has developed. And the intention is that churches can go through these workshops, read these passages, and and complete some exercises to have conversations around racism and LGBTQ inclusion starting from Latinx experiences. This is the first major project that Proyecto has put out, and as we talked about before, you and I were very heavily involved in the editing and and production process uh, of these materials. So we both are super excited that they're finally out to the world and we no longer have to uh, do anything with them because we went through many, many editing rounds to get them into good shape. So I would love for you to read what you wrote in this toolkit. Crossing Gender Borders is the title in my text is, but he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are Inuks who have been so from birth, and there are Inuks who have been made Inuks by others, and there are Inuks who have made themselves Inuks for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who accept this, who can, Matthew 19, 11, 12. Imagine that a young girl is with their mom in a fabric and seam shop in downtown Brownsville, Texas. The mother asks, what fabric would you like? The times when my mother and I went shopping are some of my most precious memories. At that moment, though, I was internalizing a frustration and guilt that I could not explain. I knew I should be grateful that my mother spent hours sewing my dresses and skirts, that they were prudent and worthy of me, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's how my life was until my mother entered the hospital and died a year before I graduated from high school. Some time had passed since my mother had died when my father stumbled across a notebook I kept where I have written on how to live a righteous life before God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. A woman must not wear men's clothing. It is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut. And these are just some examples of an extensive list that in my youth I followed. And I believed that I needed to learn to be a virtuous woman. Although my father was not religious, he would let me go to church. However, after reading my notebook, we both decided that it was best I stopped going. With his support and the restlessness that my mother had left to me about how the love of God was more than memorizing the Bible, I left behind this way of leaving. At the age of 18, my father took me shopping at a clothing store. And not only that, but he took me to the men's department where he gave me my first cargo pants, a pair of blue jeans, a cowboy belt, and boots. For the first time in my life, I felt like I had found myself. I felt such happiness, yet at the same time, I felt deep sadness because I knew I had disappointed my aunts and I had left the community of fate where I grew up. Today, I understand that this norm and way of living works for some people, but for me, it had oppressed my self-expression and extinguished the flame within. This past year, my father passed away, 
and among his things I found that notebook I speak of. And I also noticed that at the end of the notebook I had written the biblical passage of St. Matthew where Jesus talks about the Anuks. And perhaps at the time I did not understand as I do today why I wrote this is the love of God next to this passage. Although it was a decade before I publicly admitted I was a gender nonconform, atrogynous individual, my father unknowingly liberated and opened my mind with endless possibilities. When Jesus spoke about the Anuks and Matthews, he did not deny them the kingdom of God, but instead invited others to understand how all are welcome. And this is why it's important to share with our community that they can find peace. For in our bodies, we show the essence of God's love and the transfiguration that happens in our lives. And it is my prayer that we see how biblically we are asked to do justice, love mercy, and to clothe ourselves with love for perfect unity. In the end, it is truly biblical that we may love each other. That's awesome. That's such a great, just a great affirmation of anybody who is somewhere between the gender binary that our world has established. Yadi, thank you so much for sharing your story and for coming on this show to chat about theology and books and furries. It was super great speaking to you and thank you for your work on Proyecto and hopefully this is just the start of really awesome things to come. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. If you liked today's episode, drop us a note at EncuentrosLatinx at gmail.com. Be sure to check out Proyecto de Gracia y Bienvenida on Facebook to keep up with this podcast and see more of our content. You can follow me personally on Instagram at TaylorRama and Twitter at TaylorRamage. If you like poetry, you can find my books on Amazon. We hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.